Welcome to Ad Hoc. I'm Jack. I'm Jaden. Today we have a very special guest, Jonathan Martin. Jonathan is the current politics bureau chief and senior political columnist at Politico, where he writes a spellbinding column we highly recommend. This is Jonathan's second stint at Politico, where he was one of the company's first hires before moving over to a small paper called the New York Times, where he was the paper's top political reporter. He's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, with a distinguished alum of this publication, fellow political reporter Alex Burns. And of course, top honor that he's had might be serving as a resident fellow this past semester at the Harvard IOP. So Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We 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 do this on a really momentous uh, week in American politics. We have just gotten word as we come on the air here that Doug Mentum Burgum has lost his mentum. Doug Burgum is dropping out of the presidential race. A and, massive uh, loss for the field. <laughs> exactly. uh, you can cue the Elton John goodbye Yellow Brick Road in the background as we uh, have this conversation. Um, we'll... Uh, We'll mourn his departure, but we'll we'll have to go on, and we'll uh, we'll find the the strength within to to muster uh, in these difficult days ahead. No, no, in all seriousness, it was um he's a, a sitting governor of a state and like a really successful business guy, um, and kind of remarkable that he stayed in the race after like not making the debate stage and kind of being a non-factor and uh, made it into December, and I didn't leave until like after um, Mike Pence and Tim Scott um, both both quit. But kind of gets to the heart of this weird non-campaign of a campaign that we're we're finding ourselves in, um, where people with significant resumes and backgrounds um, who, in an, an earlier era, may have been at least on paper a more uh, appealing candidate, are just um, you know not remotely um, competitive, um, and sort of says a lot about the state of the Republican Party right now, which is uh, you know obviously dominated by. Uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Trump. Yeah, and to think that Ber- Bergam had something that Pence and Tim Scott never had, which was the eyebrows. You know that the debate stage yeah. really losing a lot of facial expression. And he had a lot of money, money that he used to give people uh, gift cards, yeah. um, in which uh, they could then um, uh, use for uh, purchasing gas, and uh, uh, as long as they gave him a dollar, and that helped him build his list and mm-hmm. got him into the first debate. Yeah. Um, did he make the second debate? Yeah, he was there for the first two debates. It was Asa. Yeah, not the most recent one, I think. But he, he, he Asa Hutchinson, the former Arkansas governor, House member, U.S. attorney, head of the DEA, still in the race. Amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we, we got some big candidates to keep our eyes on. Dean Phillips is a favorite, too. Or... Yeah. Forgotten but not gone. Asa Hutchinson. At least in New Hampshire. A- Asa Hutchinson, always going on. Well, we uh, Yeah, Dean Phillips uh, fighting fighting the fight in, uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, the Dean Phillips congressman from Minnesota, who, after trying uh, for a few months to get somebody else to run for president in the primary against Biden, realized that the governors in the Democratic Party were um, um, biting their tongues and hoping for the best in 2024 for Biden and plotting their own uh, races in 28. And we're not going to uh, jeopardize their future by challenging Biden in a primary. Dean Phillips, all right, well, if you're not going to do it, do it, I will. And he, uh, He's obviously running in New Hampshire where, um, uh, you know, Biden is not going to be on the ballot 
uh, as some of your listeners may know, Joe Biden, because he changed the primary calendar, is not competing in the New Hampshire primary. And uh, the, as of at least today, Democrats are going to strip New Hampshire of delegates if they go forward with their primary as first in the nation. And um, Biden's not going to be on the ballot there. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, live free or die. Biden will, you know, maybe live free of New Hampshire's electoral votes. Exactly. Although a lot of the Democrats, including former uh, Harvard IOP director uh, and now senator, uh, I'm not sure that was a job promotion um, going from the head of the IOP to senator, but arguably that's somebody else to judge. Uh, Gene Shaheen and, and company leading a uh, a write-in campaign to get um, to get Biden uh, over the hump there. So Biden's going to have to win as a write-in candidate if he wins that primary. So, anyways. Um, yeah. Well, 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 look, let's yeah, let's dive in on Biden, though. We'll, yes. We'll, we'll get to the Republican side. There's sure. uh, you know, tons to do there. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to Biden's messaging. Yes. What do you think that Biden should be uh, stressing more than he is now? We, you 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 have some ideas for him. You know, we, yeah, we... I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago after talking to a lot of Democrats about sort of um, how could you turn around the Biden uh, effort? Um, how can he improve his numbers? How can he go into 24 in a better place than he is now against um, against the Republicans? And um, the overwhelming consensus that I got was he should toss Bidenomics in the dumpster. I mean, they they're, they're wedded to this phrase Bidenomics, and um, you know it's puzzling because most people don't believe the economy is in a good place, and it sort of would seem like politics 101 that you wouldn't brand. Uh, the economy after the name of your candidate when people don't like the economy. Um, not sure that really adds up. So, um, but the White House, I'm not sure if they're going to do that. Um, they've started talking about magonomics more, talking about the the Trump approach to the economy. Um, so let's watch closely and see if they if they slow fade Bidenomics and um, and uh, uh, ghost Bidenomics, as the kids would say today. And if they if they adopt uh, magonomics instead um, to to portray the the opposition, so I think um, that's that's one approach. I think the other approach is just you know dragging Trump by the lapel into the camera frame, not not literally, but you know figuratively, like you know making this a real choice uh, campaign and sort of reminding people about Donald Trump and what he represents and what he would do if he's back in power, and you know driving that message and, um, you know, every day uh, talking about um, Trump as the alternative. I mean, as long as the American voter is just making a judgment on Biden himself, it's obviously not pretty, right? But does that look better for Biden if it's more of a, a, a choice election? And, you know, also, like, making this about the future, you know, Bill Clinton used to always say elections are about the future, not the past. And he also used to say that Republicans care more about my past than your future, he would say to the voters. So very crafty line. You can almost hear him saying it. Um, and, uh, you know, Biden's got to do that. He's got to make, make this about the, the future of the voters, about their tomorrows, uh, not his many yesterdays, um, and sort of move this away from his age to, uh, as uh, J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, said, not Biden's age, but the the age of Trump's ideas, which are retrograde and out of date and bad for the country and all that, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, you know, framing uh, framing up uh, the future and uh, compared to the Trump vision. Uh, and I think part of that includes addressing the age issue, right? You can't just ignore it. Voters are really concerned about electing 
or reelecting, I should say, someone who's 82 or, or is going to be 82. And you can't just skip that. And like, guys, it's an issue that every American voter gets, right? It's like the least complicated issue out there. Everybody in the country has somebody who's older in their lives and like they understand aging and they, they know what that means. And um, it, it just the kind of thing he's going to have to do more to assuage voters' concerns about. So that's a start. Um, there's some stuff on personnel we can get into if you want, but that's just sort of a start. Though. So the the economic concerns, throwing Bidenomics in the trash, yeah, trashing Trump, yes. those are mostly concerns about the center and the right. But like as of recent, maybe there's some some concerns uh, from the left. Yes, Biden's been yes. very supportive of Israel, um, yeah. which has drawn the ire of a lot of the progressive left in the country. Do you think that's uh, an issue where he should draw back a little bit? I mean, this is Biden's challenge. He goes into twenty four. In kind of a pincer, um, he he's facing you know real questions from his right, the, the people that kind of held their nose and voted for him reluctantly in twenty, kind of you know you call them like free Trump Republicans or kind of Bush Republicans, right? Who are appalled by Trump? They're not Democrats. They just voted for Biden because he wasn't Trump, and those people are obviously not thrilled with him. They think he's gone too far to the left. They think he's too old. So he has that problem on his right flank, and on his left flank. He's got real, uh, real challenges uh, among progressives and especially younger progressives um, because of how he's handled the war in the Middle East. So, like, these are tough times for Biden on both sides um, uh, of his coalition. And um, he clearly um, he's going with his gut on this. I mean, Biden does his own foreign policy. Um, He's been working on these issues for, as he would say, literally, folks, a half century. And um, he, he'll tell you about his time with Gold in My Ear uh, happily. Um, and um, he he's unapologetic about siding with the, with the Israelis. Um, now, they're, I think they're doing obviously more in private with Bibi, but that doesn't translate necessarily um, with a lot of progressives under the age of, of 40, especially under 30. And you see his numbers falling with that crowd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's some hope that when those voters are forced with a choice of Trump or Biden, they'll choose Biden, even reluctantly. But the challenge there is, you guys know, because you're on a college campus, like a lot of those voters will simply choose not to vote in the presidential, or they'll find a third party option. I mean, that's the risk for Biden is he's not facing a head-to-head choice, that voters have an escape hatch, that the kind of pre-Trump Republican that I talked about has a no-labels candidate to vote for, uh, uh, and that the college kids in Madison, Ann Arbor, maybe even Cambridge, who knows, uh, could vote for a Cornell West or a Jill Stein. Um, so uh, he's got his work cut out for him on on, on both flanks. And um, there there's no question that there's a massive generational gap in the party uh, when it comes to the Middle East. Yeah. And I mean, on that that young vote, I mean, it seems like in 2020, but a unbelievable push factor for Biden was that our generation, you know, 18 to 29 year olds who usually, you know, lag far behind in turnout, we actually turned out. We were so about the potential of another Trump term. Yet, you know, fast forward four years, you got articles coming out about a Trump 2.0 that are, I mean, way worse than what we saw in 2020, you know? I mean. Yeah, but it's interesting. um, There's almost a, um, 
an unwillingness to confront what that necessarily means in uh, a Trump 2.0. And I wonder how much of that is because people lived through it before and they're kind of just like a nerd to it or kind of um, worn down. And I wonder how much of it's because Trump isn't the nominee yet. And I wonder if that changes when he's like back in the news every day as the nominee. I also wonder if it changes uh, if and when he gets convicted in some of these cases. Um, like what makes that Trump return tangible? When is that moment? When does that become real to the to the American voter? I agree because like right now, you know, it just it doesn't feel like it did when he was president or even a candidate, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the legal trouble. If if I was putting on my campaign manager hat right now. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking at um that New York Times Siena poll that came out one or two weeks ago that oh. it really will matter, you know, if Trump is convicted in one of these cases. You know, that poll said that if the election is held basically today, Trump wins yeah. Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, right. Pennsylvania. He he right. wins if he's convicted and sentenced, Biden wins all of those states. So totally. My my question is, I mean, I understand there's risk of backfire. You know, there's lots of people that the prosecutions are politically motivated. Yeah. Why isn't that part of the take Trump by the neck and put him in front of voters argument? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think Biden is not comfortable talking about the Trump legal issues in part because some of them are being prosecuted by his own DOJ. Um. You know, that that's a that's a that's a delicate deal for Biden. He doesn't want to be seen as being, you know, uh, somebody who's using his justice department to prosecute his opponent. Um, because that's like that's the message that Trump wants to send. Trump wants to say this is not legit. Uh, I'm a political prisoner. I'm like, you know, Nelson Mandela in a massive red tie. You know, um, uh, I've got for an image for you. Um, and um, Biden doesn't want to feed that. I mean, in some ways. It's remarkable, like Biden is uncomfortable talking about abortion and Trump's legal jeopardy and his son, Hunter, like three of the issues that are oh, in his age. So like four of the issues that are like characterizing this moment and the the campaign and like Biden is uneasy with all four of those issues for for, for different reasons. Um, that, that's a little bit of a challenge, right? When, when your candidate is having trouble talking about the biggest issues there are you know yeah so so biden clearly needs to change his rhetoric and his actions but he also needs uh, a super team behind him um yes you've you've advocated bringing in um some uncommon names uh, for biden yes i haven't heard from many other democratic uh figures so i i want to pose to you Yes. Names you've mentioned and you yes. give a quick defense or or no no defense on Please. why you brought into the fold. Sure. Rahm Emanuel. Yes. Rombo. Rahm Emanuel is the former mayor of Chicago and famed Democratic uh, operative. Um, Rahm Emanuel is one of the most talented Democrats of our time and uh, certainly uh, one of the most uh, ferocious um, as an operative. He's not everybody's cup of tea. The left doesn't like him for a variety of reasons. Um, he is somebody who is a polarizing figure within the Democratic Party. But when you're on a war footing politically, you need wartime leaders um, and somebody that um, could sort of uh, uh, 
operate uh, in a sort of combat setting and politically speaking. And he certainly is one of those figures. As I wrote in my column, um, this is a moment where um, when, when Trump goes when Trump goes low, uh, Rahm Emanuel Democrats should go fucking lower. Uh, to borrow a pungent a pungent term, Rahm himself would use. Um, look. You got to you got to combat Trump with everything you have at your disposal. And see, Ron is somebody that I think could do Biden and the, the Democratic Party more good uh, domestically in 2024 than he can in Tokyo right now as the U.S. ambassador to Japan. I got to say, I'm all for Rahm Emanuel. My brother's name is Rahm, so he's got a Rahm for mayor sign above his bed. So there you go. There you go. Ready to get that one out. How about. The Clinton family, Hillary and Bill. Yes. That's going to be a tougher sell. Yeah. yeah. So this was kind of fun. Um, uh, the Clintons have uh, a lot of talent. And I think Hillary Clinton certainly has one more uh, act in a public life left in her. And so some Democrats were uh, sort of um, thinking out loud about this. And so the idea would be, once there's some kind of a longstanding uh, ceasefire, or a, a more a more um, permanent um, uh, a ceasefire in uh, in the Middle East, um, uh, there's going to have to be some kind of peace negotiations. There's going to have to be you know an eventual deal reached to keep the two sides at bay for as long as you can. And so my thought um, that I put out there with uh, uh, um, uh, this was sort of planted by some Democrats. Is what better special envoys to the Middle East than then Bill and Hillary Clinton? Um, it's going to be hard for Biden to both run America, run his reelection, and oversee Middle East peace at the same time. If one of those three things have to give, then maybe you can turn Middle East peace over to the Clintons. They have deep experience in the region, relationships, history there, uh, and it will be the added benefit of um, giving them a more constructive thing to do and a really tense. Uh, election year than like chewing over the latest polling numbers and complaining about media coverage of of, uh, of Biden. Uh, give them something to do in the Middle East and help them build their their, their legacy. And uh, maybe just maybe you never know they could uh, get the big peace deal that was elusive when Bill Clinton himself was was president. Maybe maybe that's Hillary's comeback. And I don't think that's likely to happen. I'll say <laughs> that. I think it it seems like a cool idea. It definitely would give. A lot of fuel to truth social Trump. I mean, Hillary and absolutely Bill and Hillary pulling the strings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think finally, maybe this is a little more mainstream, but how about how about a centrist trio of Joe Manchin, Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney? Yeah, this is one of the things I'm puzzled by, and maybe it's just a matter of time, and it's only December, and there's still time yet. I'm surprised Biden has not moved more aggressively to bring what I would call the kind of um, the anti-Trump center, center-right crowd uh, into his tent. You know, Biden, one of Biden's talents is he had a great capacity for relationships and for um, and for understanding uh, what what makes politicians tick and um, uh, both globally and at home. And I'm surprised he's not done more to get Romney, Liz Cheney, Joe Manchin, um, frankly, the Bush crowd um, into his orbit. Um, again, this may just be a matter of timing, but you know he's going to need every oar in the water next year um, 
to stop Trump. And I, you know, those are people who, while, you know, they're obviously uh, not beloved by some parts of this country, do have like a standing. And, you know, if Biden has to make the case that stopping Trump is a matter of like protecting American democracy, then you got to have those folks making that case for you, especially given what I was talking about earlier, which is it's not going to be a head-to-head race. And so you're going to need people saying, it's not enough to oppose Trump. You got to vote for Joe Biden to stop Trump. And I think you need credible people like that doing it. Um, and um, I'm just surprised that Biden has not moved more aggressively to court Romney, Manchin, Cheney, the Bushes. You know, you got Camp David, you got Air Force One, you got the White House. Like, uh, where's the love, you know? Yeah, just to play devil's advocate there. I mean, do you think there's a view that the people that are going to be swayed by a George Bush coming out and saying, I'm voting for Joe Biden, are already in the Biden camp. You know, they're basically never Trumpers and that Trump's. Well, that's the issue is that they're definitely in the not Trump camp. Are they in the Biden camp? And and, and that's the crux of it, right? They don't want to vote for Trump. And they probably will never vote for Trump. But are they going to vote for Biden or are they going to skip the top line or write in Ronald Reagan's ghost? Or are they going to, which, by the way, literally Larry Hogan did that, the former governor of Maryland. Yeah, or are they gonna are they gonna wait for a no a no labels candidate like Larry Hogan himself yeah. and you know say I didn't vote for Trump okay well, what'd you do you know and that's the risk for Biden that that his coalition from 2020 collapses that the kids stay home or go for a Jill Steiner or Cornell West and the the pre-Trump kind of bushy crowd uh, doesn't doesn't hold their nose and vote for for Biden again. They they set it out. They write in somebody, or they vote for the no labels candidate, and um, so that that's the issue at hand. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about the Republicans a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, you were reporting earlier on this year about the the race within the race. You know, yes. the the clamor to be both you know the candidate, but also the anti-Trump candidate. Yes. The idea there would be you know a Trump and a non-Trump, but if if there was a race, you know, Trump was running a marathon essentially and everyone else is running like a 40 yard dash because no one no one has really lessened that gap so just yes. broad you know bird's eye view from your reporting sure. what happened to everyone else well, why did they miss their chance this is the closest thing to an um to an incumbent race that's actually an open seat race that I can remember. I mean, Trump is a de facto incumbent Republican, and you're trying to dislodge effectively an incumbent Republican from the nomination. And that's tough, period. What makes it tougher is that Donald Trump has a vice-like grip on a significant portion of the Republican Party um, that doesn't care what he says or does. They're his people. They're not moving. And a lot of them um, are are you know going to be there for him through thick and thin in the primary in general. And then the folks that are not for him are a really divergent bunch. And this was always the challenge, right? I, I wrote this months ago. You know, talking about this answer, but it applies to anybody that's not Trump. Is that you have to put together a coalition that includes people that like still love Trump, but just think that like it's time to, to move on or he can't win. People who don't really like Trump but voted for him and they're good Republicans, but like, you know, want to find somebody else. And then you have folks that hate Trump 
and that desperately want to find somebody else, but are still Republicans. Like those are three very different groups within the Republican Party. And you got to appeal to all three of those. And like you've seen why that, that's tough for somebody like the Santas to pull that off. And um, and um, so it's not easy. It's not easy to put together that coalition. Um, you know, Trump is under 50 in some of these early states, which is notable given his strength. But again, are there the votes there from those three disparate groups within the Republican primary coalition that that, that one person can, can put together? We, we haven't seen it yet. Now, that said, you know, let, let's see when this race is closer to, to a head to head contest. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we, we've seen, you know, between Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, it feels like the gap between that. I hate Trump. You know, I disavow everything. And, you know, yes. he, was, he was the right choice then. He's not now. Totally. Not clear that even if you put those groups together, that there's a candidate there. Maybe DeSantis has maybe tried to have. Yeah. It. And that's the thing is like, even if you do pull off that coalition, like maybe even that's not enough, you know, like that still may fall short. Um. You know, one of the things that's not talked about enough is like Trump has remade the coalition, too. It's a much more working class party. It's a lot of folks that didn't go to college. Um, if you just like peer like for 30 seconds into the crosstabs of any of these polls and look at the split um, between college plus and non-college Republican voters, like you'll see Trump's strength, you know. And um, this is why South Carolina could be tricky because there's a lot of working class voters there and Trump's going to do very well with them. Yeah, it's going to be embarrassing for Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, we, we could talk about politics for 2024 all day, but we, we also want to pick your mind a little bit about issues in journalism broadly. Um, yeah, I want, to, I want to start with AI. Um, there's obviously been a meteoric rise of AI in the past year or so. Nobody here. This is actually me. It's not Jonathan Martin AI. You're getting the real human here to say no. That's good because we weren't. I know you were concerned about that. That's, that's for all the viewers out there. We're not faking Exactly. Um, just last week, Sports Illustrated was caught publishing oh, AI-generated stories with AI-generated profiles. That's that's Sports Illustrated. It's not it's not Politico. It's not the year. No, but it's, it's it's Sports good. Illustrated is a, a great brand yeah. in American journalism, and um, yeah, it's really concerning. Um, I don't like it. Um, I see some of these newspaper chains like trying to do AI, like sports coverage, uh, even for like high school games, anything. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, it's dispiriting. I mean, I think, you know, we have a real challenge in this country of not having shared facts and living in our like our partisan silos in part because the information flow has changed so dramatically with the rise of the internet and then the acceleration of social media. And when you add to that, AI and like deep fakes and um it's gonna be unclear like what what's what's true or not in a way that we're not even prepared to deal with yet. Like Sports Illustrated using bots to write stories is a downer as a journalist, but like as a American and as somebody that cares about the country and institutions, I, I really worry about just um discerning fact from fiction going forward. You know, it's it's gotten harder. It's going to get even harder, right? And the burden's going to be on the consumer even more. Yeah, and even from a workforce perspective, I mean, I think you know it's, your your job is safe. No one can write AI J Mark columns, you know, yet. They're they're good, but not that good. But it does seem like a lot of short, you know, Axios articles could be 
large yeah. model produced, you know? Yeah, no, it's going to transform uh, a lot of industries. And, you know, technology has done that over the centuries, obviously. This, this wouldn't be the first time. Uh, but, you know, that can cause significant strain on society when it happens. And so, um, yeah, I think from a workforce standpoint, it's going to be um, uh, significant. I think from a, uh, you know, you know, informed voting public, I think it's going to and I think just like civil society, right, it's going to be really significant. Um, so we're not fully prepared for for the implications. Hopefully we'll have some bright Harvard kids who will help us figure this out and steer us through these tumultuous times here in the years ahead. Unless all you guys go to work for like McKinsey and Goldman or something. That yeah. wouldn't happen to Harvard, would it? Never. That would, that would never happen. Never. No. never. So the jury's still out on, you know, what we'll go. We're in for the long haul. Yeah. So Harvard kids, if you're listening, if you don't want to go to law school, <laughs> if you don't want to go to med school, if you don't want to go work for McKinsey and Goldman, that's okay. You don't have to do those things. Don't feel pressure. Don't feel implied obligations from your parents or from your friends or your peers. If you want to go and be a journalist, if you want to like go work in politics, or if you want to go backpack across Europe, those things are okay too. You'll have fun. Give it a shot. And don't feel like you have to figure out the rest of your life here in the next half an hour. Yeah, make Politico the new McKinsey. You know, let's. let's... I'm all for that. Yeah. I'm not sure that we can pay as well, but I can tell you, you have a hell of a lot more fun covering politics. That's more. No, important. but like in all seriousness, um, my wife and I had such a great time at the IOP, and um, can't say enough good things about um, uh, HPR and the IOP and uh, and the Harvard um, experience. And uh, I hope you guys all figure out what uh, what you want to do and uh, go with. Go with your gut, and uh, um, if something is cool and appealing to you, then there's a reason for that. Go, go for it. Thank you. I'm I'm glad we treated you well. It's it's going to be sad with you out w without you on campus. Yeah, no, we we had a great time. Exactly. I'll, I think the Kirkland Dining Hall are probably thankful now. I'm not going to be <laughs> uh, cutting into their profits so much. You know. Yeah, they make two fewer meals every every night now with with Jay Mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's let's if you. If you can peer into the future a little bit. Yes. We'd love to ask about um, kind of uh, the future stars that are rising up through the parties. Yes. You've written some Great question. Yeah. I think um, one of the most fascinating parts of this moment in American politics, and there's a lot of fascinating parts to it, um, is what it's done to the next generation of both parties. It's kind of put on hold uh, the ambitions of so many people uh, who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, who would you know naturally sort of be entering their prime right now, we are poised to have two um, candidates for president who were formed by the Vietnam era. It's hard to think about another period in American history where you had um, major parties nominees who who were shaped by a war that was a half a century ago, and for you know kids your age, like that's ancient history. Um, and I think that has um frustrated people in both parties, and um I think it has um it has sort of um made encouraging folks to go into public service a little bit more difficult. I think um because they they just look at the generation that is sort of sitting on power right now. Um, and um, that can be uh, that can be really challenging. I think about Congress a lot. Like people who are now leaving Congress are not running at all because they don't think it's worth it, and that that worries me. Um, but 
there are lots of ambitious, talented people in both parties. Um, on the Democratic side, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, Mitch Landrieu, who's the former New Orleans mayor and infrastructure czar, um, are obviously big talents. Uh, uh, there's, you know, a lot of Democratic governors uh, who I think are going to be heard from in the future. You know, Andy Bashir's gotten some press recently for winning twice in Kentucky. I think Tim Walls, who's the new DGA chairman, uh, the governor of Minnesota, could be a future candidate for president or at least VP. And, you know, J.B. Pritzker and Bill Murphy, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, there's so many governors out there who I think have ambitions um, that are kind of on hold right now because of, of Biden. And obviously um, the VP, uh, somebody who I think has already run for president once and, and almost certainly will uh, again when the time comes. On the Republican side, um, you know, you, you've got a sort of bifurcated party now between kind of non-Trumpy Republicans and more Trump Republicans. And how does that sort itself out? Um, you know, my experience is that typically what comes out of these moments is kind of a hybrid party. It's not going to be a fully Trumpy party, but it's certainly not going to go back to being a, a Bushy party either. Um, can somebody like Katie Britt, the senator from Alabama, who's young uh, in her first term, can she navigate the, those currents uh, in the future? Um, or are more populist figures who are a tad Trumpy or Josh Hawley, uh, J.D. Davis, are those figures uh, the future uh, of the party? Um, uh, I think th those are more uh, uncertain questions that we're going to be uh, seeing play out here in the years ahead. Part of this, I think, could be resolved by who Trump picks for VP. Does he pick somebody that is like a successor or just pick somebody who's not really a threat to him? You know, um, I think Trump is shaped by his experience with, with Pence. And so that's going to inform a lot of this. Um, so um, there is a there's lots of um, lots of importance will be attached to his VP. Uh, if he is, in fact, a Republican nominee. But thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for doing this pod. Thanks for being great hosts uh, to us at Harvard this fall. And uh, we had a ball. Thanks a bunch. Awesome. Thanks so much, JMR.